Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What is a poltergeist? Are they actually are they actually trying to scare you? What can you do about them? Hello and welcome to the 590th edition, I should say. I thought there would be one or two or something there. Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben, and those brief but pregnant questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. And this evening, we welcome two guests with a rather terrifying story, and uh, we welcome your calls this evening. The numbers are 800-449-1240, that's from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, and 401-766-1240, that is locally, although we probably cannot take calls at all, because both of our lines are occupied by our guests. <laughs> okay, well, so, right. <laughs> But we do have email, so if you want to ask us questions via email, paul at behindtheparanormal.com for emails, or you can also use Facebook message. All right, well, Jenny Ashford is a horror writer and graphic artist. In addition to the Mammoth Mountain Poltergeist, co-authored with Tom Ross, her b- other books include Red Menace, Bellwether, The Five Poisons, The Tenebrist, and two short story collections, Hopeful Monsters and Associ- The Associated Villainies. Her short stories have appeared in several anthologies as well. Tom Ross is retired from the U.S. Army. He now researches the paranormal, builds motorcycles, likes to cook, and uh, also acts as a freelance club promoter. Uh, Jenny and Tom live in Orlando, Florida. Already so. Ever- oh, wait, ah. oh, oh, geez. All right. There's a second page. I wanted to give there. the website, Benjamin. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> which is JennyAshford.com. Uh, she also has a long, uh, long, she also has a blog cheerfully named GoddessOfHellfire.com with current news about her writing and her opinions about horror genre in particular, in general, and uh, in literature and film. All right, so Jenny Ashford and Tom Ross, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Hi, guys. Hi, thank you. Now we can get our tongues untied tonight. Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> Mondays. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I feel like Garfield. Anyway, so you two have an interesting dynamic. So, Tom, let's start with you. At the age of 13, you were an eyewitness to the Mammoth Mountain poltergeist. Uh, but, Jenny, you're pretty much a paranormal unbeliever. So, care to comment? Uh, well, I wasn't actually a witness, although I did witness it. I, I'd actually classify myself as a poltergeist focused or poltergeist agent, which is, uh, at the time, I was the young kid that... It, Everything was uh, coalescing around, kind of like Paul. Yeah, yeah. Didn't you witness one? Didn't you witness? I witnessed a number of them. Okay, remember the one that you were talking about about the little girl? Oh yes, that was uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut, 1974. Bridgeport. Not all that many years before the uh, Mammoth Mountain situation. Many years, but that was I was basically the equivalent of that little girl. Okay. That's how old I was? All right. What was going on? So you would you would you would call yourself uh, what in parapsychology would be known as the agent? The agent, right? Okay. And I'm, I, and I'm the only agent that's really talking right now. Okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, the girl from um, uh, what was the uh, the really good one in in England, uh, the real famous Enfield. Oh, the Enfield Janet one. Janet yeah. Hodgson. Yeah, yeah. She won't talk anymore, and. Uh, Donnie Deckard, a, uh, also known as the Rain Boy or the Rain Man, mm-hmm. uh, he's not available right now. Well, the girl from the case in Bridgeport just passed away just a few months ago in her oh, early she 50s. Did. Yeah, she was, she had, it was oh. terrible. And we had not been able to contact her, and I'm thinking of Bill Hall, the author of 
the um, um, World's Most Haunted House, which came out last August, uh, unable to contact her. And she never talked about it either, as far as we know. So uh, right. I, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Jenny and I wrote the whole story down, and I gave it from my perspective of uh, how they start. And um, I take you with me through the entire event. And uh, I... Uh, we reinvestigated the case with all the other witnesses and got all their testimony of what they were thinking at each particular time. And uh, at the end of the book, I point the reader to the works of um, actually real physicists that are working on uh, science that could support much of that phenomenon. Okay. And I let the reader be a judge of what causes it, even though I do, I do give my opinion based on, you know, yeah. my observation. Mm-hmm. No, that, that makes sense. So, Jenny, where are you coming from in all this? Well, interestingly, I mean, like I said, it was kind of, I'm a horror writer primarily, so most of my stuff is made up. But um, when I met him, I'd probably known him for maybe a year and a half, and he was like, you know, I I saw Poltergeist once when I was a kid, and I was kind of like, no, you didn't. You, you, you know, and I was <laughs> like, I, you know, I'm a total skeptic, I'm an atheist, I was just like, I was like, I'm not buying it. But the more he talked about it, and the more I interviewed um, his aunt and uncle, who pretty much, they were like, yeah, this is what we saw, and they described it, and everything like that, I was like, maybe, you know, maybe there is something to it. And so, you know, I asked him if it was okay if I wrote a book about it, and then I could put my own kind of skeptical spin on it, too, so just so we could get kind of both sides of the coin. So, you know, that's how it kind of came together. So... As a novelist, do you do you uh, does does this create any kind of credible problem uh, when you try to write a nonfiction book? So so is there is there um, a credibility issue? Yeah, I haven't really encountered that so far. Um, I ma- I mean I made it pretty clear, like in all the materials, that you know, yes, I normally write fiction, and I did actually kind of write this in a fiction sort of form just to like make it more interesting. But mm-hmm. you know, like in that kind of narrative structure. But, uh, you know, I did make it clear that this is a nonfiction work and I'm just, you know, describing exactly what was described to me and I didn't embellish anything or anything like that. But so far I haven't really had any kind of credibility issues or people telling me I'm making things up or anything like that. Oh, that's that. good. Yeah. Right. She, she just, she's just presenting the testimony, the witness testimony, yeah. in a story in, in, in a form that isn't so dry. Yeah. Uh, nothing was added to the story. We didn't take anything away. Because I've I've been advised in a long career as a as a writer, you know, not to write fiction, because the people expressing the opinion thought that it would harm my credibility as a nonfiction. So not, you can't win, I guess, right? Yeah. Yes, I guess that's one of those things. Well, Jenny and I don't worry about it. You know, I mean, we I know what happened. I was there. I saw it. My my uh, aunt, uncle, my cousins, the neighbors, and we all saw it. But it happened in a time. When it was pre-internet age, nobody knew what a poltergeist was. Uh, we assumed that it was a ghost. And uh, you didn't really... We were afraid to tell anybody about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it didn't last very long. It was intense, but it only lasted about two weeks. And by the time we really started to kind of worry about it, the, uh, the phenomenon was starting to stop. Okay. Well, we wanted to th- thank you for your service too, Indeed. by the way. Um, oh, yeah, and um, so let, let's let's uh, 
go go over the basic story for those who who have, who have not heard the story or read the book. So please tell us what happened in 1982 when you and your family, uh, Tom, headed to the Mammoth Mount, Mountain in California. Well, I can tell you what happened, but in the book, I can explain that a poltergeist, uh, poltergeist episodes take a long time to brew. Mm. I mean, I think they brew in the background for several years. There's a lot of uh, uh, family tensions and things like that you'll hear parapsychologists talk about. And on this particular occasion, my aunt and my uncle... My cousin and I had the opportunity to go to a ski resort, a ski lodge at Mammoth Mountain in Southern California. And uh, on the way there, there were a couple uh, strange things happened. And when we got there, I immediately started note- noticing that, uh, well, I'll tell you the first part of the story. I put my bag down on my bed, and I had another bag out in the car to go get and when I got my second suitcase and brought it in and went to the room that I was going to stay in, I saw a motion out of the corner of my eye, and I saw that my bag had been opened and moved on its side, and there was clothes scattered around in about a two or three, maybe three feet diameter, and there was a rolled-up pair of socks. You know how you take two socks and you roll them up like a ball? Mm-hmm. That was jetting across the bed fast, maybe, uh, I don't know, 20 miles an hour, and it moved probably about four feet, and as soon as my eyes really fixed on it, it stopped immediately. It stopped so quickly, it almost blurred. That's interesting. We'll go back to that. Yeah, well, that was just the beginning of it, and that was a... I saw it, and I went, no, that didn't happen. No way. I must have... It must have just fallen over. And then uh, we... Went back to normal uh, activities of the day, settling in, and we were all getting kind of a strange feeling of being watched and pressure mounting. What, what do you mean First pressure? There, not, excuse me? Uh, how, how do you mean pressure? I started to feel anxious, like okay. something bad was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it really didn't kick off until the following day. And, um, well... The first thing that happened is that, uh, okay, what convinced me was this. My aunt, my uncle, and I were standing in the doorway looking into a room. We had suspected that some objects had moved in there while we were gone, and we found hand towels folded up on the back of a drafting table chair, and we were, we were all like, what is going on here? And my aunt said, my God, that is an ugly lamp. I'm, you know, that lamp, it looks terrible. Because, you know, it was just a, a lamp and it just didn't look good. So we uh, just walked away from the room and my uncle shut the door as we walked away. We never went into that room. We went five steps up that hallway. And my uncle said, wait a minute, hold on. Let's go back and memorize the contents of that room and see if anything moved. And he opened the door. And we all just let out a gasp because the lamp was gone. And it was, it was gone and it was in the closet with a, uh, with the electrical cord trailing across the part of the floor. Hmm. And I let out a scream and just read, ran straight to the front door. And, um, that's really when we came face to face with, uh, well, what you would call the paranormal. 
And as soon as we recognized that it was a reality, it accelerated. Uh, we would have, oh, man, hundreds and hundreds of objects moving in the house per day. And uh, some of them thrown, some of them seemingly teleported, called apportation in uh, parapsychology. Uh, strange phenomenon, uh, a blue, hazy, wispy areas up near the ceiling and round balls uh, look like about the size of a softball. Yeah. Uh, something up in a corner looking at you. Now, I heard, I heard your story that you saw gauzy humanoid figures. Well, not necessarily humanoid. It was just sort of gauzy. And wh- when I, I had the physical contact, because you and I had a, we, we usually talk with guests we don't know before we book them for the show. And you and I had a very interesting conversation several months ago. And I believe that this came up. But uh, there was a, I've had physical contacts with these. We don't interpret it the way most parapsychologists do. And we'll get into that later. But uh, yeah, they were sort of gauzy shapes. But there, there was a physical presence there. And I felt... What what what's felt like skeletal structure and this kind of thing, but it wasn't wasn't really human. But I'm sorry, go ahead. What color was it? Well, it was it was very transparent, or perhaps I should say translucent, and uh, it was almost like a, a sort of a sickly white kind of a, okay. a kind of a thing. But I have seen the blue haze that you mentioned. Yeah, ours was blue. Yeah, we did have a sensation of being in the presence of something. Oh, of absolutely. Watching. Yeah. It's there. I ha- I have an explanation for it if you read my book. Sure. But, well, I, I, uh, we we have, but you, but the the listeners haven't. So feel free to explain. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of getting ahead of myself, though. <laughs> yeah, we do that. But uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of weird stuff happened. It's a real phenomenon, and uh, I've been researching it ever since. Uh, I pay to see it again. That's how rare it is. Yeah. You're very lucky to see it. It's. It's one in a million. It, it, it is rare in my experience. Now, 45 years I've been doing this, and I've only been involved in two really uh, serious, serious poltergeist cases, such as the Bridgeport one and another one was in New Haven, both of them in Connecticut. And I've seen poltergeist phenomena here and there, but, but not like that, you know, going on for days and that kind of thing. So you were, how long were you in this? It was a condo, right? How long were you in this condo? We were only there for about five, six days. Okay, that's then enough. Went, well, then I went home, and it continued a little bit at my house for a few hours, because we were only at my house for a few hours. Yeah. And then I went to my aunt's house for almost another four or five days, and it went on there, too. So it was not location-based. Interesting. Okay. And it did accelerate. It got stronger. And uh, I just made a lot of... I noticed a lot of... Uh, of details about uh, the phenomenon that a witness normally wouldn't notice. Mm-hmm. A witness is going to look at it differently. Can you give us examples? Well, a poltergeist focus starts realizing that what the poltergeist does is usually a reaction to your mental state. If you start worrying about something, it'll happen. If you uh, look at an object too long, that object will eventually be moved when you take your eyes off of it. Um... It's, uh, if, if, if an occurrence happens that amuses you and you have a positive emotional reaction to it, the phenomenon then becomes playful. If something big gets moved that surprises you and startles or scares you and you become intimidated, the poltergeist will then start becoming intimidating. Uh, 
So are you suggesting that the, par the, the poltergeist is an extension of oneself? Well, yeah. Uh, what I believe it to be, based on other experiences I have later, uh, NDE and uh, an out-of-body experience when I was in the Army. Yeah, NDE, a near-death experience. Yeah, okay. Right. Uh, you know, I pretty much got wiped out in a motorcycle wreck when I was in the Army. Oh, and, I didn't uh, know that. I was in a coma. Oh, yeah, I was in a coma for a while. Hmm. And I went through the whole, um, you know, kind, kind of, you know, the tunnel and uh, the, those stories. That's what I had. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, but I also had before that um, a OBE, uh, just a uh, spontaneous out-of-body experience while I was in bed. And uh, my roommate witnessed it. And poltergeist phenomenon happened during that OBE. Okay. Uh, now, uh, I kind of lost. Lost track of where I was. Oh, what I believe well, it is right. is that I believe Poltergeist is kind of like a stunted version of a um, OBE. Instead of the consciousness becoming exteriorized, I believe it's the unconscious or the subconscious. That's interesting. Yeah, all right. So, well, Tom, uh, one of the questions we always ask folks who've been through this, uh, whether they're on the air or not, is... Uh, there are usually, not always, but there usually are other phenomena that occur, as you just described, uh, later in your life or even before uh, yeah. the experience that we're discussing as the main topic. You know, So when you were really little, um, and you were only 13 when this happened, but when, when you were really little, do you recall UFO sightings, for example, or maybe a Bigfoot sight or anything of that kind that, you might, that we might ro you know, rope into the corral of the paranormal? Uh, yeah, but not UFOs or Bigfoot. Uh, the only okay. thing that I remember, uh, say, at the ages between, you know, 6 and 14, is uh, occasional bouts of premonition hmm. of knowing what would happen or knowing what someone was going to say. But it's difficult to put your finger on something like that, you know? Sure. And if you think about yeah. it, you'll lose it. Right. You know. So, you, But you don't know if it's just probability. All right. Uh, the only thing that I was absolutely sure of, because I had so many witnesses with us, is that objects can move with no visible cause mm -hmm. in something called poltergeist. I know poltergeist phenomenon exists. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, as do oh. we. When, during yeah. the, the Mammoth Mountain case, did you see any apparitions? Yeah, but they weren't humanoid, like I said. It was right. usually a, um, a blue haze. A lot of times it would cover, say, like the uh, the ceiling, about two feet thick, mm -hmm. cover the entire ceiling. Sometimes you could look down a hallway and look into an open room and see that it would totally fill a room. Or sometimes you'd look up in a corner of a room and there'd be a little a, a round ball about the size of a basketball or maybe yeah. a baseball. Like an orb is the uh, saying. Like an orb, but it, yeah. like an orb, but it was weird because it. It seems to be glowing, but it wasn't casting light. It seemed to be some kind of a, uh, particles, but not really smoke. And if you tried to focus your eyes on it, it would kind of fade. You had to look to one side or the other, and it was slightly out of your peripheral vision. But everyone could agree that it was there. And if you put your hand into it, it felt cold. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. You weren't really sure if it was cold or if it was some kind of static. Yeah. Like I, I, like, I don't know if I put a thermometer in there, it would read. But I just, we just were saying, is that cold? Yeah, we think that's cold. 
Was anyone attacked at any point? I don't know, maybe not attacked, but but was there was, was there physical any, uh, harm that yeah, physical harm or physical uh, interactivity with whatever this was uh, yeah. by you or anyone else? And can you describe that? Well, it never touched anybody. Okay. Uh, probably the creepiest thing that it did is that it produced free drops of blood, and I have the blood still. Hmm. Uh, it produced it on a sheet of toilet paper. Yeah. That I poured it into a room where all the doors and the windows were closed and we were waiting outside, and it would flicker It would flick the light off and on out in the hallway to give us a signal to open the door. When it was doing things, it didn't it usually preferred not to do them while you were looking right at it. it yeah, that's right. It likes to do things right. when your back was turned. Yeah, that's it funny. It like it was, you noticed that? Uh, yeah, I did, actually. Uh, in Bridgeport case particularly, you know, you, nobody was ever looking directly at, at the thing, including the child. When it right. occurred, for example, you know, a table would flip over, or the refrigerator. Although, although we were the, the police and the firefighters and I were looking at the refrigerator when it lifted up, so there were right. some things. But uh, but in general, it was, um, you know, as you say, out of the corner of your eye, or or you know, you'd hear the bang and that would happen, or, right. or you could see the, the the piece of furniture flipping over after it had begun to do exactly. something. Exactly, you know, that kind you of thing. You see an object arrive but not depart. Uh, so right. effectively, yes, and and you then. I'm sorry? We'd sit out there, and, and, okay, here's a good example. My uncle and I were sitting in the uh, living room of their apartment. So it had been going on for days, it was more than a week at this point. And his back was to the kitchen. And I was sitting in the other couch, facing straight ahead, so it was kind of an L-shaped configuration. A, I just heard the, uh, heard the sound of something hitting the floor near my feet, right in front of the uh, uh, sliding glass window. And I just heard something go, boom. And I looked down, and it was a kitchen knife. Oh, dear. And, and my, my uncle said, did you see that? And I said, oh, I saw it hit the ground. And he goes, no, it came from the kitchen. It was moving as fast as you could throw a baseball, point forward, almost hit the glass, stopped dead, and fell directly straight down in like, a single stroke. That happened at Bridgeport, too, with kitchen utensils. Yeah. So Ben had a question. Have you ever had that, Weird, blood, huh? have you ever had that blood tested? No, but I want to. We don't have the money. I always wanted to know if it was if the blood was from one source or from three different sources. Yeah, interesting stuff. Now here's another there's question. Three spots in a triangle. That's in, hmm, interesting. So here's 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 a question. We're gonna get a little heady here. Actually, no, mm -hmm. right, never mind. I'll save it till after the break because we have like another like three and a half minutes to our break anyway. Okay. Okay. But uh, the, the one thing you said too, uh, Tom, was when the clothes were scattered around. That's funny. That's the first thing that Ed Warren and Lorraine Warren and myself and Father Bill Charbonneau saw in the Bridgeport house when we first went in on that Sunday morning was, uh, and, and the people commented on it, uh, the thing, as they called it, would pull clothes yeah. out of drawers and throw them around, and it even put them into, a, into the little girl's baby carriage and yeah. pu was pushing it around the house, you know. Yeah, so, I, uh, have a lot of good, I have a lot of good accounts of clothing stuff in, in the book. I can even tell yeah, you, you do, about actually, that. Yeah, you do, actually, yeah. But they always start sure. with small light objects, and they work up to bigger and bigger, heavier objects. Well, this is part of the M.O., as you say. It does seem, yeah. seem to start slowly. Uh, I would love right. to have known. Do you ever find out who was in the condo before you? At that, no, during nobody that lived there. 
It was a company condo. Oh, that's right, and too. Yeah, that's right. You told me that on the phone. Yeah. A company condo. Nobody lived there. Yeah. But there was nothing special about the location, as far as I know. I don't think there was. Well, I don't know about that. I looked up the Mammoth Mountain. We always look for this because you always find things. I mean, maybe you, we're reading into it, but we always uh, we never look like at one house or one, one family or whatever. We always look beyond, and, and, and you'd be surprised. The, uh, the neighbors will be having problems. The, the Mammoth Mountain has a history of UFO sightings. Uh, there have been Bigfoot sightings. There are all kinds of strange things that have happened around there. Many mountains have that. And maybe it's not connected, but we think may- maybe the conditions that allowed your situation to occur are the same that allow these other situations to occur. You may uh, maybe a flap area or a potential one. So that's part of the way we approach that ourselves. But, um, and well, how much time do we have? Uh, well, we got about a minute to the break. A minute and a half, actually. A minute and a half to the break. So. A little less than that now. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think it's a good idea. But in my particular case, looking back on it, when we all looked back on it, the poltergeist outbreak started before we got there. Mm. And that's in the book also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is, yeah. On the, on the way there, the hood of the, of the Jeep flew open. Okay. Mysteriously. And that's we happened to me, too. 40... Not the Jeep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking well, as a professional editor, I mean, the, the book is, is, is well-written. Jenny, I know we haven't talked to you much tonight, but... It's uh, it's it's well done, and uh, we'll talk about the book uh, after after the break, so people can find out where to get it. But in the meantime, why don't we um, we, t- we take our break, and uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on W O O N, twelve forty in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back. Hi everyone, this is your Mater D in the Tiki Bar, Joe Callahan, inviting you into the Tiki Bar every Tuesday night from 6 until 7 p.m. It's nothing but the best in Jimmy Buffett music for the full hour, 6 to 7, Tuesday nights, right here on ON Radio. The Tiki Bar is brought to you by Papa John's Pizza, 1049 Cass Avenue on the corner of Menden Road here in Woonsocket. Remember, better ingredients, better pizza, Papa John's. It's the Tiki Bar right here on ON 1240 WON Socket Radio every Tuesday night from 6 to 7. And we're back, and I wanted to just mention several of the charities, and Tom will appreciate this because we're both veterans, uh, veterans charities that we support on the show. Uh, certainly USACares.org, doing great things financially for uh, wounded veterans and their families or families uh, of veterans who've been killed. And uh, when there's a financial problem, out goes a check. Great, great folks. Check it out again, and that's USACares.org. Also locally here in uh, our part of New England, we have BuildersHelpingHeroes.org, uh, Rhode Island Builders Association subsidiary, that actually built a, a wonderful uh, special needs house for a Marine who'd lost both his legs in Afghanistan. And I was privileged to be at the the key ceremony when that, that was turned over. A lot, a lot of vets were there. It was really great. So ch- check out these charities. Also, our friends to the north, the Canadian Veterans Advocacy, my friend Mike Blaze in Ontario, uh, working legislatively and illegally to help Canadian veterans who sometimes don't get what our veterans get. I mean, there aren't as many of them, and the benefits uh, sometimes could be a little better, in my opinion. Anyway, so check those things out. So let's get back to our discussion with our very interesting guests, uh, Jenny Ashford and Tom Ross. And uh, we're going to talk about the book right now before we burn up the hour because we're going kind of quickly. Yeah, Tom and Jenny, tell us about, uh, about the book, The Mammoth Mountain Poltergeist, and where people can get it, and your websites, etc. I'll let Jenny know. Okay, um... Yeah. <laughs> well, it's available on the, it's available on uh, Amazon, and you can get a print version. And I just recently put up a Kindle version also. Cool. All so right. if you have a, if you have an e-reader, you can get it on there. And uh, I think you mentioned my website at the beginning. I just have 
JennyAshford.com or GoddessesHellfire.com, which is my um, blog, a horror blog. And, um, yeah, so the book's pretty much available anywhere online. You can get it. Great. Okay. Uh, ben, you wanted to start us off for the next half hour. Okay, so this is this is going to get we're going to get into the behind portion of behind the paranormal <laughs> now. So you this is this is um, going back to, to the the blood question. So here is uh, a question uh, more more on your theories of why this happened. How can a um, a, a uh, an extension of of uh, the the host's consciousness do physical things? The mechanism by which it happens. Yes. Is that what I'm being? Um, well, boy. It could possibly, it, it's not going to be a guy like me who solves this. It's going to be a physicist or somebody who studies the, uh, is doing consciousness studies. Uh, it's going to be a guy kind of like, uh, hmm, who figured it out, Jenny? Well, maybe David Deutsch. Stuart Hammeroff, maybe. <laughs> Hammeroff, yeah. yeah. A guy like Hammeroff. All right. Somebody who's, somebody who's doing consciousness studies. There's a, there's a good possibility that consciousness, as we know it, could be is not necessarily in the brain. It could be in some kind of a, uh, in, in, in a, a, a what do you call it? Quantum well, like entangled particles. Exactly, and yeah. non non local, as they call it. Yeah. Non local. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, well, the reason we asked too is because. Um, you know, when we started, when I started out many years ago, and then Ben too, uh, you know, we just didn't see it the way parapsychologists see it. And I, and I know a lot of parapsychologists. I worked with some for many years, uh, way back. But the, it just—it seemed to me that in most cases they were trying to make something that really doesn't fit in physical science fit physical science, like well, the, the yeah, I mean, around the, hole kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, they said there's really no, there's no technical mechanism for PK. They never found one. Even if they did, PK technically breaks all the laws of thermodynamics as well as the inverse square law, so all Newtonian physics is thrown out the window. So the question is this. How can this experience be proved to critics? And how PK can being psychokinesis. Indeed. Because that yeah. doesn't explain it any more than PK does to people. No, not at all. But the movement the, of objects by non-physical Well, the, the idea is if there is a, is a critic that, that, that brings this up at a lecture or, or something or some, some skeptic that's like, well, yeah, this, 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 and that, how, how would you respond to that? First of all, I don't think it's the mind moving physical objects. That's not, what I, that's not how I picture it. Mm-hmm. Now, I picture it more like whatever your consciousness is, maybe some kind of... In, entangled information, quantum information, it must be it must be interacting with the quantum entangled information of the physical object. In, in other words, not the physical object itself, but the quantum particles that are associated with it. So it would be kind of like, uh, if you wanted me to put it in, spirit, in spiritualistic terms, it would be like the soul of a person grabbing the soul of a material object and moving it in the spirit world and because it's connected to the soul it moves in the material world is that a is that a good picture well yeah i've i've heard that uh it's kind of retro in in the but yeah i think you agree with that i think what what, retro but i was just trying to break it down oh sure sure yeah it's it's not happening i don't think in normal state time i don't think it has much to do with energy or matter well so it, it means that I think it means that science is incomplete, that there's stuff that science doesn't know yet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think we agree on that. 
Right. Let, let me turn that around on you. Uh, we might say that instead of the, the spiritualist approach that, that you just described, you know, with the soul grabbing the soul kind of thing, uh, we, we tend to favor more the, the quantum uh, multiverse or even the holographic theory, yeah. uh, wherein yeah. the physical, uh, an alternate physical uh, uh, entity or whatever will, will grab the alternate physical manifestation of the same entity, which is really... You know, these worlds, if, if they're correct, aren't closed. There is a energy exchange back and forth and all this kind of thing. So this is, the thing is, we really don't know. But from what yeah. we've seen, we tend to lean more toward that, that particular um, interpretation. Now, let me ask you this, uh, and, and I'm, I'm going back, of course, to uh, one case in 1975 in Connecticut where there, there, there really wasn't any agent in, in the normal sense of, of the textbook case of the poltergeist the young girl was 14 but her mother had made her leave the apartment because of what was going on and the woman would come back who was in her 40s she'd come back and and literally do battle with this thing she did all the wrong stuff and just made it worse uh but there wasn't any child uh the children are often interpreted as the the agents in other words uh, the um, particularly around the time of puberty or, or whenever there's as you say uh, stress in in the family or, or whatever ducks have to be lined up for this to occur uh that it's it's generally focusing on a child what, what we find at least the way we look at it and i'd like to get your opinion on this is that the the thing starts slowly because uh these are parasitical life forms that are looking for something to eat simple as that and uh, in the bridgeport house for example it started with pounding and as the people got more annoyed or angry or frightened, the, uh, the, the entities got stronger because the, they ate the energy that was being put out by the people. Now, your case is interesting in the Mammoth Mountain situation because you hadn't been there before. And you, what, so if, if we're right, what was it feeding on? You know? and, and you seem to walk into a situa situation where it was fully developed. And uh, when these... The strength is gained by these, this entity or these entities. I think there were four in the Bridgeport house. Uh, you've got uh, more abilities at cross-world interaction, such as the moving of the refrigerator or, you know, as we were describing, the movement of, of the objects. Uh, so so that, that's, that's one interpretation that we tend to agree with. Now, let me ask you this. When you were witnessing any objects moving or, you know, when they were moving in, in the uh, condo when you were in there, did you get the feeling that, it was an actual entity moving these things, or that they were just moving? Funny question, but... No, I had the feeling that it was an entity. You did? Okay. See, I, I rarely ha have had that. When we watched that refrigerator float up, it was... Uh, I, I, often, I got the impression that... Well, the presences, I felt, were not there when a lot of these things were taking place. And I yeah, wondered... you can't predict it. You, you can't predict it. And I, no. well, that's, one of the, you know, that's one of the things I'm talking about, is that I didn't feel any presence before some of these things happened, or even while they were happening. And I right. wondered if maybe the, 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 the forces or the energies that allow them to manifest in our world, but whether it's spiritual or whatever, multiversal or whatever, um, also allow things to, to change physically. In other words... Um, when, I always use the analogy that when you run down the hallway, say in your house, and there are some papers on a desk or on a table in the hallway, you can stir up air that will knock the papers off the table. But you didn't actually directly knock the papers off the table. You see what I'm getting at? And I'm wondering if the uh, the energies involved in, in that allow paranormal things to occur, such as this, 
Maybe just the byproducts were the refrigerator lifting up. Maybe uh, there was a pass-through world where the laws of physics were different, and we've had eminent physicists on this show, not all of whom agree with us all the way, but, but many of whom believe that there are different physical laws in these different alternate worlds, and that when you have a, a membrane of one passing through another, stuff in our world can't float or fall off or you know whatever happens. You know, again, just one point of view. So that's... Um, uh, would that enter into your experience at all, if that was a possibility, or, or what say you? Uh, well, yeah, these are, I know I saw, these are tough questions, you know. Yeah, based on what I saw, I don't believe that there was any, there was no maximum effective range per se. Okay. Yeah. As long as you were entangled with the object, you'd be able to move it, as long mm-hmm. as you knew of its existence. Okay. So just because the kid's away doesn't mean that the things in the house would stop moving. Yeah. Yeah. Because the kid's thinking about the house. That's where the problem is. Interesting. Okay. So, there, because another thing is, is that if, if, if anything like normal physics is involved, uh, no, it wouldn't have worked because my aunt saw a kitchen knife lift up about three inches and vanish into thin air. Hmm. And we found it later in another room sitting on a bed. Now, if you're going to physically teleport an object by the laws that we know require a lot of heat, you'd have to big, big old ring a neutron bomb. You'd have to yeah. tear the space-time continuum. Yeah. It would have vaporized Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So, and it winked out without a sound, not even a flash, no heat. And it was the same with all the objects. I've heard stories of people will pick up an opported object or a moved object and it'd be warm. Yeah. But we didn't notice that. We didn't know yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, but but not always warm. Yeah. Tom, no, it just seems normal. Yeah, exactly. You're both going to love this one. I don't know if you've listened to our show when we had uh, Tim Swartz on, but Tim uh, is is a longtime investigator, and he talked about a case uh, where in which they were sitting in the living room, and uh, up by the ceiling where where your haze might have been seen, there were a bunch of stones that appeared and dropped to the floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah and and he. Just tried an experiment. He picked up several of these and w- with a magic marker, like put an X on a bunch of them, went out to the field, back of the house, threw, threw them into the field, and within 20 minutes they had reappeared in the, by the ceiling and fallen down to the floor, complete with the X's on it. I thought well, it was that, pr- that would be that, that would be easy to do, actually. Okay. Poltergeist would find that easy to do. All right. Uh, here's a good example. Whatever you're focusing on, that's what the poltergeist is going to do. It, it wants to please you. Interesting. Like, uh, I know okay. a parapsychologist that measured how far an object moved. Jenny, do you remember how far that object moved? Was it 42 inches? Which one? The, the statuette? No, no, no. The one that Steve kept measuring it. And every time an object moved, it would move that exact same distance. Oh, right, right. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I think it was, I believe it was 42 inches, yeah. It always moved inches. the exact same distance. So is this, is this sure, enough? That was, because, that was because the poltergeist was aware that Steve was looking for 42 inches, so it kept giving it to him. Interesting. And with a poltergeist focus, a poltergeist focus or a poltergeist agent is suggestible at this time. If you tell him it's a demon, that's what the poltergeist is going to act like. It's going to act like a demon. Yeah. If you tell him it's a ghost, it's going to be a ghost. Yeah. No, no I think there's a, a lot of truth to that. Because it, 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 it wants to push your buttons. Kid, okay, you, you know, uh, Brian, uh, the, or the Paul, Paul. I'm Paul. When you... Okay, when, who, who saw the, the, the four and touched the four ghostly entities? 
Well, that was me. Well, only one of them, but yeah, there were, there were four at the oh, time. Oh, one? Yeah, yeah. well, the, the physical contact was with one, because the others were in one. different parts of the room. Okay. I guarantee you, I thought it was a group of them. So, Mitch, you did. That. Okay, all right. <laughs> if it was a group of them, I probably would have thought that it was, that girl had been beaten up at school, that maybe she was uh, thinking about the kids that beat her up, and, and manifest made kind of an apparition of them, like a fake apparition. I don't think anything, looking back on it, any of the apparitions that we saw, I think were more of a pseudopod, something that was kind of a sensory apparatus. Right. Um, I, it wasn't there when objects would move. It would just be there at random times. And just like you said, sometimes you would feel a presence and sometimes you wouldn't. But you always felt creepy. It always felt creepy. Yeah, in these situations, pretty much does, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. The... Uh, I, but I, I still the big difference here is I, I still think we were dealing with independent entities rather than something produced by the agent. Although uh, we've got the whole tulpa phenomenon that's known best in Tibetan Buddhism, where, where as a spiritual exercise, the monks will sometimes concentrate and, and produce uh, some sort of entity known as the tulpa or spirit or whatever you want to call it. And sometimes it, it, that's not a good idea because they can't get rid of it. Uh, I think there might be some relation there. But what I think is, is uh, some parasite picks it up and just comes and acts like that and does what you just said. Uh, Ben's got a question. Well, it's, it's more of an observation, I guess, that's sort of like a throw out there for discussion. As, as, a, as someone who, who lives in, in the modern world, I think that I can honestly say that all of us in this conversation are all bound by the same, uh, what's the word, uh, assumptions made by the Enlightenment in the late night, or the, was it the 18th century? 18th century. Yeah, 18th century, where essentially we can find out everything empirically through evidence, uh, through, through the five senses, and maybe even the sixth sense if we're going to go into parapsychology, but we all seem to view things through a certain framework. For example, Tom, you view things through a framework that, okay, everything is, everything that this parasite is doing is through a, um, through an extension of consciousness, which I wouldn't say is wrong because I have no idea. But we view it through a certain framework as well. Everybody d views all these experiences through their own framework. Say you have, uh, you're in your backyard, you see a gauzy figure, but there's a flying saucer above it. Oh, it's an alien. Inside your house, you see a gauzy figure, it's a ghost. I think the problem is our minds cannot handle what is outside of our understanding. It's very much like a digital camera. A digital camera will see an image and rearrange it into something we understand. Same with our brain. Now, discuss. <laughs> okay, well, it was well put, Ben, I must say, you know. Well, okay. It means right. What we're this, saying, this, I think, is, is we don't really know anything. Why, this is one of the reasons why I'm, I, I don't really think it was an outside force, in my case. There was no uh, organized attempt at uh, communication. It only wrote one word that I can remember, and that was go, and it was scribble. It oh, that's interesting. It tried to speak once. And, and here's the weird thing. It wrote go in a context that could have meant a couple of different things. Uh, but in the book, I explain that. Another thing that it did is it tried to speak out loud, uh, but I couldn't understand it. It was just garbled, and I ran from it. Um, and also, uh, it didn't harm anyone or break anything. So it seemed to be conscious of the value of physical objects in the house. And I think if something was totally an alien entity from the bowels of hell, it would kill you 
and break a bunch of stuff. This thing was strong. I mean, it was strong. It could have easily crushed a head or uh, turned somebody's head around backwards or uh, it moved a, a bunk bed that must have weighed 400 pounds effortlessly without any sound. Uh, it could have been very dangerous, but it wasn't. It only did enough to get attention. And I noticed that these phenomena only only really serve one purpose. Uh, and they, they all eat, well, they serve two, two purposes, actually. They seem to either be trying to break a family apart or bind a family together against a common foe. Like, for instance, the, the little girl in, in, in the case you were involved in, she was in a family she wanted out of. So the phenomenon was used to call for help. And uh, in my case, my family was kind of breaking up, and this helped bind it together. Oh, that's so the phenomenon was kind of self-serving. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Had, do, you, do you feel that if you had been there for another month, say, in, in that condo, that uh, the nature of the phenomenon might have well become more concentrated become more powerful uh anything of that do you think it would it would have further developed well remember that we left that condo and it followed us to my aunt's house in, in its what? full in its full sense in other words it, oh yeah oh okay oh, yeah. all right no, it got stronger it got stronger at my aunt's house interesting okay it, it actually made it made a dummy out of clothes and a badminton racket and put it next to my cousin while he was in really? bed and it did it and, and it did it in a split second. And then it put a baseball cap on his head while he was asleep. While my aunt was watching him, it was that was another weird thing. You could once one time I put a uh, well that's getting that's going but anyway I put a folded up hand towel on the top of a curtain rod and was backing away from it and it would turn away. I was trying to catch it moving and I would turn away from it and then quick look back. I did that about three times as I was walking away from it. Simultaneously, my uncle was standing in the doorway looking directly at that folded-up hand towel. We were trying to catch it moving something. And I looked away and looked at my uncle and right in his eyes, and I could see that he was looking at the hand towel and looked back. I looked back, and it was gone. And I said, where did it go? <laughs> and I looked back at him, and I saw it gone on his face that it wasn't there anymore. And he went, I don't know. I was just looking at it. And I turned around to, to look at the empty uh curtain rod and he said there it is and I looked at him he was pointing at my back pocket and it was hanging out of my back pocket folded up neatly half of it was in and half of it was out folded over my back pocket that's very interesting oh and I jumped I jumped five feet pulled that thing out yeah screaming wow and you didn't do that you didn't feel anything messing around with your back pocket I didn't feel it go in and here's the weirdest part that I can't understand my uncle was looking right at it and he didn't even see it vanish Mm -hmm. wow he just I, he just was looking around, wait a minute, hold on, where did it go? And, and later on I said, did you see it wink out or vanish? He goes, no, I was just looking at it, and then I couldn't find it. When did this end, or did it? It ended, it ended at my aunt's house, and I t I'm going to save that for the book. It, it, okay. it, it ended pretty abruptly, All right. and, and, I'll, and I explain why. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, now, after that, it shifted. It's it kind of like it matured into out-of-body experiences. And out-of-body experiences are were reported in the Enfield case.
but not explicitly. They were inferred. Mm -hmm. uh, Janet said she lifted up out of her bed with a book in her hand, went through the wall, and dropped a book in the, apart in the neighbor's apartment. And the book was found over there. But most of the people that were in the case do not believe that she actually physically went through that wall. They think she kind of actually projected up and brought the book with her in the same way that a poltergeist would do it subconsciously. With the soul-to-soul -soul kind of process. It's like a soul thing, right? Yeah, okay. All right. Well, we respect that. Um, okay, well, I guess we're, we're just about done. We've got to get into our announcements and stuff. Uh, Jenny, uh, you haven't... We haven't talked to you much on the show, but we really appreciate you being here. Tell us again, once again, about the book, where people can get it, and your websites. Okay. Uh, my websites are just JennyAshford.com or GoddessOfHellfire.com. That's my horror blog. And uh, the book is, you can get it on Amazon. Like I said, they have the print version and there's a Kindle version. Um, you can just Google it, and it'll come up all over the place. So. Okay, very good. <laughs> Well, thanks so much. It is, I, I say it, it is a very interesting book, and, and we really enjoyed having you on. And thanks a lot. We'll uh, talk to you again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Indeed. Have a good night. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, then. Okay, everyone. Let's, uh, we're, we are so backed up with emails. I wanted to at least get to um, one or two uh, tonight. Maybe we have time for one, you think, Ben? Yes. All right. This is a relatively brief one, and it's from... Neil in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Okie doke. So Neil writes to us, uh, Hi, Paul and Ben. I totally agree with most of your views on the paranormal. Love your show, by the way. Listen to the podcast on the way to work, and I'm currently on 2013 now. We read this already. Yeah, but we read it on oh, the show. Oh, right. that's right. Yeah, we on the show, show. We lost sorry, the podcast. Sorry about that. So right, uh, one thing that troubles me is the question of UFOs. I have heard you talk about UFOs and alien visitations as possible crossovers from the multiverse into our universe from beings of, uh, from other dimensions or parallel worlds. I do believe this to be true, but on the other hand, I also believe that not all of these sightings are because of this. The universe is a big place, and it just has to go on forever. Uh, technically, it's a measurable distance, but we're not going to go into that now. Uh, because if it does end, uh, then what's behind the end? Uh, what if you know what what are you or if you know what I mean? Uh, I the quote uh, to quote Jodie Foster from the film Contact: "The universe is a big place. If it's just us, then it's an awful waste of space." And that's a very good quote, actually. So he said, my question is this. Do you believe that some of these visitors to Earth are actually creatures from other planets or just multidimensional beings? Okay. Well, multidimensional beings, other planets, uh, I don't know if there's any meaning to answering that in the sense that they could be both. They could be neither. We don't know. As Ben so uh, eloquently put it in, in talking with our guests, we, um, we have a certain point of view, we speak out of a certain framework, and we hear whatever answers we choose to hear really in the same framework, whereas the reality might be way outside of that framework. So if you see a nuts and bolts craft uh, landing, uh, as we very often hear about in, at UFO conferences that, w that we speak at, there may be uh, it, multiple explanations about where it's from, when it's from, how it got here, and if it's even really here. So th these are all open questions, none of which we really know the answers to. So I think that you're probably, uh, Neil, uh, looking at probably a yes to, to both answers. It's, it's not one or the other, I don't think. Uh, people, and you can, you can be on another planet, and I suppose technically you could use multiversal principles by which to travel to this one or to mm -hmm. anyone. Uh, technically, you could you could travel from Earth to the the other end of the Andromeda galaxy or the other end of of the known universe instantaneously, 
if you simply found the right membranes through which to travel. There's also the wormhole theory uh, that, uh, in, in a sense, you'd have a picture of the universe as, a, as sort of a, um, a balloon, okay, and it's got tunnels from one end to the other. So you wouldn't have to travel all the way around the surface of the balloon. You just travel through one of the tunnels to get to the other side, okay? And that way you'd uh, be able to, uh, to do your traveling, right? So um, no one really knows. That's the motto of our show. Everything you know is wrong, and, or you don't know it at all, one or the other, right or wrong. So uh, you've got uh, any, any kind of potential answer to that. All right. So um, we probably ought to start our announcements at this point because we have a lot of them. All right. So um, on Saturday, September 5th of this year, uh, we'll, we are scheduled to speak once again at the Exeter UFO Festival in Exeter, New Hampshire. The town-wide event is organized by the Kiwanis Club there to benefit local children's charities, and they do some great work. Other speakers besides Ben and myself will include this um, st uh, Stan Friedman, a guest a few weeks ago and a good friend who's written the preface to our, our next book, uh, along with um, uh, Richard Dolan. Kathleen Martin, and Jennifer Stein, whom we don't know. We're looking forward to meeting her. So we'll provide more information on this as the date approaches. Now, on Thursday, September 24th, uh, we will Ben and I will join Bill Hall, William J. Hall, author of the forthcoming book, The Haunted House Diaries, about the, this uh, rip-roaring case in the Litchfield, Connecticut area and, uh, that we have been talking about for some time and been working on for 10 years. Uh, for a joint book event with us at Hank's Restaurant in Brooklyn, Connecticut. Now, Hank's has great food, and there'll be a lot of great fun, and we'll all be there. And we'll do a presentation as well with a PowerPoint and this sort of thing, and a lot of give and take. It should be, should be great fun. Alrighty, so on Saturday, October 10th, uh, we'll once again uh, be speakers at the Great New England UFO Conference at the City Hall in Lemonster, Massachusetts. Other speakers will include uh, Stan and Richard Dolan, uh, also Peter Roberts and other UFO greats, or Peter Robbins, I should say, not Roberts. Right. Uh, yeah, 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 we all know who we're talking about. Uh, watch for more information on that event and others coming up this year. And don't forget about our show website, that's BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find nearly 600 free podcasts and past shows from both ON 1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. Now, we're all aware of the terrible earthquake in Nepal uh, not long ago, and a uh, especially terrible thing to happen to those. Th they're just great people over there. Uh, before we recommend a charity, Ben and I check it out thoroughly, and if you can donate to help the Nepal earthquake victims, Ben and I recommend Action Against Hunger. It's an American charity, and nearly 87% of what you donate actually gets to the people who need it, as opposed to administrative expenses or whatever from some other charity. So check it out, uh, Action Against Hunger, and they also help people in other situations as well, not just in Paul. Now you can find my books on Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, and Barnes & Noble Nook, and all the usual suspects. Uh, but if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, our show site, I'll be happy to sign them for you and you will help us keep all those podcasts free. It does take a little while because I have to, you know, the, the orders come in and then I have to sign them and all that, but uh, uh, we do get them out as soon as we can. Also on our website, you'll find direct links to several charities uh, that Ben and I have adopted, including, as we mentioned, USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, too, doing great things for youth out there. And uh, there are two new books just released by Global Communications. Uh, Tim Gre Timothy Green Beckley's publishing company, The Bell Witch Project, has attracted a lot of interest, and he's put my name on the cover, so people, <laughs> I didn't really write it, I just contributed. Uh, and also, 
Uh, some interesting cases from early American history uh, that had to do with the paranormal. A special interest to folks here at, on ON 1240 and the listening area is another Beckley book, UFO Repeaters, with an entire chapter on our old friend Joe Ferrier, talk show host here for Owen, uh, on ON for over 50 years and a well-known 1960s UFO expert. Both books available at Amazon.com. Okay. Okie doke. So next Monday, uh, June 15th, we'll welcome journalist and UFO legend Alejandro Rojas uh, to talk about several unusual UFO topics. Yeah, including whether they might be living beings. We leave you this evening with a quote attributed to the great Winston Churchill. If you're going through hell, keep on going. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And it's also uh, Winston Churchill said, never, 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 never give up. Also, we have a few right. seconds left, so I'm just trying to drag that out just a little longer. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on a great cosmic journey, and we will see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.